I read a story yesterday about a modern hero. His name is Jay. And it's a little town I'd never heard of, but up there in upstate New York, outside of Buffalo. So you can imagine what the story is about. He was home safe on Christmas Eve when he got a phone call from a friend who said he was trapped out in the storm and that nobody could get to him. So Jay decided that he would go. So he went, and as he was driving along, he saw another man who was wearing a much too light jacket for this storm, and he worried about him. So he picked him up, and when he picked him up, he kept going. And he got stuck once and was able to dig himself out, but he got stuck the second time. And with his clothes completely soaked and his vision starting to get foggy, it just became hopeless. So he got back in the truck, tried to dry off a little bit. His truck only had a quarter tank of gas left. And he then began to knock on doors to ask people if they would please let he and his friend come in. He even had $500 to give them. And he was turned away several times. So he got lost going back to his truck, nearly lost consciousness. And then he just happened to see this blinking or flashing light that he remembered parking his truck by, so he was able to find his way back. And he remembered, uh, then he called the police and they just told him, we're sorry, we just can't get to anybody right now. But he did find out that his friend that he went out for had been rescued. So he decided to take a nap, the truck running, and about 11 o'clock that night, there was a knock on his window and an elderly woman who was stuck in her car since four was out looking for help now. By then, by the, by the time daybreak came, he had run out of gas. So they were huddled into the woman's van, just the three of them. When they woke up, she was embarrassed that she had to go to the bathroom, didn't know if she could or where she could. So Jay got out and he began to look again and he looked on his GPS and he just happened to notice there was a school nearby. And he made his way to that school and being a mechanic with an extra pair of brake pads, what he had was he broke the window of the school. He thought, this is our only hope. He broke the window of the school and she was able then to come in and use the bathroom and imagine that they're in this school they've broken into. The alarm is blaring and he doesn't know how to turn it off and he can't, but they're inside and they're warm and she's able to use the bathroom and Mike, his, his, his new friend, is, is in there and warm. So he decided to go back outside and he began to look in the mounds of snow in the cars and he found 10 people out there. And he brings them all in and he eventually uh, learned how to turn the alarm off and about 10 people in the vicinity, they made their way to the cafeteria and there were apples and there were cereal. And the school was warm. And then eventually they made their way to the janitor's closet and there was a couple of snowblowers in there. And all 10 of those people were able to take those snowblowers, dig their cars out and be able to find their way home. As the story hit the news, one thing happened and that was one of the owners of the homes that had turned him away found Jay and stood in front of him and with tears in his eyes apologized to him. Today though, 
for me at the end of this year, living another year on this planet, the people I feel empathy for in this story are the owners of those homes. I empathize with them because all of us having to live in this kingdom, all of us with fallen natures should be able to empathize with every one of them. And that we probably, probably would have done the same in their situation. But here we are. And I realize I know that there are not too many who claim to live in that other kingdom of heaven that we've been called to be citizens of feel that way that are walking around on this planet. I know that there are people who no longer, I guess, empathize or feel in touch with the very same fallen nature that every other sinner out there has. And I have to admit that at the beginning of the story reading yesterday, and maybe you experienced it now too, we got just a little bit judgmental. So, to end this year, in the three angels' message, to end with what I believe is the, uh, if you're to have a favorite angel of the three angels' message in Revelation 14, the third angel is my favorite. And being able to end this year here, maybe the third angel has a message to address us. Of course we know that he has a message to address us in 2023, the same message that he gave back in the year one. Revelation 14, again, to recap, opens with all the redeemed standing clothed in righteousness, wearing crowns of glory, standing in uh, a number that no one can, can count. And the righteousness that we know they're wearing is the righteousness that their Savior has purchased for them. They have the faith that this grace has found its way and channeled into each and every one of them to be able to stand and proclaim. In other words, Revelation 14 opens with a picture of you and me and every other redeemed person. The reason John can't count them is because it's all of us. Everybody who will be walking the streets of gold in eternity, John sees saved in this vision. In Revelation 14. And we know the first angel then begins to proclaim to them and to all the world. A reminder that God is to be worshiped as creator. And that creation is living proof that he is loved and has loved, is loving and will always love all of those created children of him. Every one of them. And the second angel proclaims that those redeemed are not to use any of the power that that false church uses. Remember again, that this comes on the heels of Revelation 13 that is described that false church, that church that has been around ever, ever since, that church that actually ruled for 1260 years, that false church that misuses its power, that misinterprets its authority. It uses uh, the the power of this world to find people to worship. Fear, force, coercion. The second angel is to remind us that that power can't be worshiped because it's already been defeated. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And we who now live in both kingdoms, our physical presence having to navigate 
this world and our spiritual presence, being with Jesus himself seated right now at the right hand of glory, that we now live in between these two. And the one thing that we're called to do is to live in this world by the rules of the kingdom there rather than the rules here. And the church of the beast never got that message. The church of the beast can't live by that. The church of the beast hedges his bets. Fear, force, coercion. And anybody who did not worship the beast was to be killed, forced, if they would not worship. And the beast, although powerful and most popular, Remember, the beast has everything. The beast has all the money. The beast has all the people. The beast seems to have everything that we are looking for. Remember, the beast always looks like he's winning. He always looks like he's won, at least by this world's standards of what victory is. But they've been defeated. The defeat for us, then, has to be experienced not by physical touch, not by physical reality, but by only one thing. What is the only thing that allows us to stand here, fallen in this kingdom, but stand in the kingdom of heaven? The one thing is that we gotta have faith. And the faith is, is that Babylon truly has fallen. The exiles in Israel that were exiled into Babylon, even though they were completely exiled under Nebuchadnezzar's complete control, that at least for 70 years that they, they had no uh, freedom or will of their own, they had to live by one thing alone, and that was God promised them that he would bring them home. They had to live by what? They had to live by faith. So since Babylon has fallen, our third angel, the redeemed's third angel, begins his message then with a warning. And the warning is this. Another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, if anybody receives this mark, and if anybody comes to worship the beast, if anybody comes to operate, if you will, in the name of God, by the power that the beast uses, fear, force, coercion, any of those things. Woe to them, because it's really nasty to receive the mark. It goes on to say, he'll drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. He'll be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night, those who worship the beast and whoever receives the mark of his name. See, worship God as creator or worship the dragon with that counterfeit of creation. I spent 17 weeks before this series going into the details of the operation of this dragon-worshiping two-beast church. And I'm sure there are still some here that don't know what it means to receive the mark of the beast. God creates his children in his image. Creation was created in his image. And that image is simply what? Love. They were created to love God, love their neighbor as themselves. They were created with the absolute free will to be able to do so. 
They were created with the free will to worship him or not. They were created with the free will to love him or not. If love is forced in any way, it isn't love anymore. So he gives this unconditional love and he asks for their free response. And he assures them that whatever the response is, it will not change him or that love that he only seems to possess. I've pointed out several times, if the fall changed God, why did he show up the day after the fall and offer Adam and Eve the very same relationship that he offered them the day before, and that was to walk and to talk with him. They were the ones that were changed. They were the ones that refused the walk. God offers it freely whether they worship him or not, and right now they are not. Our response to his love did not change his love. He will love us if we walk with him. He will love us if we don't. However, the only way for us to experience that love and to be able to bring it in and make it part of us is to have faith that he feels that way. Faith is the only channel in which we experience that, to walk with him and to talk with him. See, the dragon creates a world that claims to be love. The beast seeks to assure worship of him by power and might and authority. Seems to be in abundance on this broken planet. Even uses the entities that employ the power the most. It will use governments. He'll use nations. He'll use kingdoms. The nations rage. The nations uh, are fueled by this. The nations are the one that are in bed, if you will, with the woman. Empire is the last counterfeit that replaces the, church, the love that the church lost back in Ephesus. Jesus said, I have one thing against you. The church isn't even a century old yet. I have one thing against you. You've lost your first love. And for 2,000 years, the church has been looking for a substitute. Empire is that last substitute because it seems to do what love fails to do. church of the lamb that was slain lives and loves as he does. Humble, quiet, preserving freedom, standing up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. The most blessed in the kingdom of God are the poor, the mourning, the hungry, and the thirsty, the meek. So how to continue this love, this steadfast love that will not be diminished by any betrayal of any sort, it needs something. So great, I'll only translate one word from the King James Version, and that word is perseverance. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in who? Their faith in Jesus. We need perseverance. I know it's translated as patience in the King James Version. I know it's translated as endurance, but a literal reading just literally says the perseverance. It is an entity all of its own. It's like, it's like a, a, a whole new thing to belong to. We are the perseverance. The saints are that perseverance. 
I like other translations that say this is a call for endurance. This is a call, but that isn't in the language. A literal reading of the language, it stands alone as its own purpose. And not just purpose, a purpose, but purpose, capital P, perseverance. And John has already told us that he is our brother in this. He lives in the first century. The time that he receives this vision, he is being persecuted. He is, he is, they are, they're on their fourth attempt to martyr him. He's been stoned, he's been boiled in oil. This is the second emperor to try to do it and he decides to just put him on this rock and hope that the rock does the job. And here he is. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the what? In the tribulation that it causes, the kingdom and perseverance. He says, you and I, we're in this together, church. Imagine, do you think he imagined that he'd still be speaking to a gathering, to a church of Jesus Christ 2,000 years after he utters these words? All of it are in who? Which are in Jesus. He was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word and God of testimony in Jesus. Our brother in tribulation, uh, a, a fellow member of the kingdom, not this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and perseverance, he says. It's a tribulation to live out this citizenship in the heavenly kingdom. We will be persecuted one way or another, sometime in our life, for trying to live by his rules on this planet. Martyred? I, I used to, I don't know, sometimes I get so arrogant that I say, I'm, well, I'm ready to be martyred. And whenever I ask, there's at least two or three people to raise their hands. Are you ready to be martyred? Oh, do we really think we're ready to be martyred? When we can't even agree what kind of worship we want to do? When we can't even agree the color of carpets and pews? Which requires then perseverance. We know we're not there. We know we're not there. Yet the promise is perseverance. The promise is our faith will allow us to persevere. Note that they're all in Jesus. The tribulation, the kingdom, it's all in him, which means he is that perseverance. He indeed persevered. He succeeded where the first Adam fell short. That's why he is that perseverance. It isn't us patient and enduring and, and hanging in there, just hang in there. That's not a hang in there message. This is perseverance. This is to be called in him and to actually claim his victory for that which he's already done. So to be a saint, to be a holy one in this true church of the Lamb, in this time in which we're living, we are to persevere. And we're persevere in two ways. One is we what? Keep the commandments of God and what? And their faith in Jesus. The two things that the church has been asked to be in persevering for. I want to address the second one first. Because I really believe it makes a difference how we translate this. I really do. 
Literally, it is not their faith in Jesus. Literally, it is not our faith in Jesus. It actually says uh, the faith of Jesus. If you were to read it literally, it actually says the faith of Jesus, which actually is incredible. How much more can he give us? We used to think that everything that he gave was so that we could have faith. And, and we try every day to muster up faith on our own. We try to exercise our faith. We try to do everything we can do to have faith. And, and we talk about, oh, my faith is running low today, or my faith is a little dry today, or my faith is through the roof today. When actually all we have to do is have faith. And if we do have faith in him, we can have his faith. He promises us. Does it make a difference? Well, I think it does because in the first place, where this is, in the first place, these persevering states, saints are called to keep the commandments of God. So I think it makes a huge difference. And the reason that I make, think it makes a huge difference to translate that of his faith, to have his faith, and to not just have faith in him. Now, don't get me wrong. We do have faith in him, but he started it. He started it. And he took me, who absolutely has no capability of having any sort of faith, and he gives it to me. Because he didn't promise just to walk with me, he promised to walk in me and in you. And if you believe that, then he says, you got my faith. And my faith, the difference between my having my faith and the difference between somebody having faith in me, it's huge. Because then we can begin to understand what the difference is in what it means to keep his commandments. Because I have to tell you that the saint's definition of keeping the commandments of God and his definition of keeping the commandments of God are completely different. And does it affect the way that we should carry out this mission? Oh, you bet it does. What has been the traditional Seventh-day Adventist view of keeping the commandments of God of the third angel's message? What is our traditional way of looking at it? The first angel told us. It's what? The Sabbath. We've always said that, right? Keeping the commandments of God means to keep them literally. We see ourselves as these people because we decided to adopt the fourth commandment. We believe that we were moved to say so. And we do it, and we did it, and we still do it as what? As literal. As it's written. As it's written on the tablet. And what has our emphasis always been as it's written on the tablet? Right day, right definition of day, a, a precise prescription of what we do and don't do. The emphasis, what was always the emphasis was the right day. It's in our name. If you don't think that that was our emphasis, we're seventh day Adventists. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that unless we leave it there, unless we leave it on the tablet. And my argument is here in the end time, that is the difference between having faith in Jesus and having the faith of Jesus. The difference between being a saint in this church and a mere follower of a commandment, it makes all the difference in the world.
The way that we were always able to simplify this was Saturday equals what? The remnant. And I'm sorry before I say this, but we also believe that Sunday equaled what? The beast. But let me show you something. When we studied Hebrews, I pointed this out to us. Hebrews actually, I'm sorry, I didn't get those verses up here. You'll have to believe me. (laughs) If to take my word, that it's in his word. But Hebrews uses the word shadow twice. Only uses it twice. Hebrews 8.5 says they offer worship in a sanctuary that is a sketch and shadow of the heavenly one. Did we believe that God actually dwelt, if you will, in the temple that was on the earth? No, the temple was a shadow of what? Of the one that was shown to him. Moses was given a model. The building isn't in heaven. The transaction is in heaven. The sanctuary was meant to illustrate, if you will, a transaction, a heavenly transaction of what happens to your sin and my sin when blood is shed over it. The second time it's used is in Hebrews 10, verse 1, and it says, the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who approach. The law can't do it because it's a shadow. The law can't do it because it is inscribed into a tablet that has no life. The law is the law. Yes, it's God's own word. Yes, it's written by his very finger. But what we forget is that wasn't his plan. (laughs) Before he wrote it down, how did we hear the commandments? We heard them. He spoke them at Sinai. And then after he speaks them at Sinai, after he gives him the outline of his character, then he invites them up the mountain. And what was their choice? No way. You go up, Moses, and bring us back what he said. And God wrote him in stone. I believe he wrote him in stone on purpose. From that very first day, he wrote it on purpose to let us know that there's nothing in this. There's no blood in the tablet. It hit me when we were studying uh, just at, yeah, it was Hebrews actually, it hit me that one of the reasons I truly believe, because Moses was the only one that would walk and talk with God, that after he comes back down the mountain and they are worshiping the golden calf, we think that he smashed those tablets because he was angry. No, I think he smashed those tablets because it condemned the ones that he was coming to. Said it right there, thou shalt have no other gods before me. He smashed him because all that tablet could do was condemn them. And he knew they didn't need condemnation at that moment. They needed what? They needed mercy. The law is the law. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
The law is the law. Everything given through Moses. Again, I know the argument, and there's that word there, argument. We as Seventh-day Adventists are told that the Sabbath is and what has been done away with, we've been told this. We've been told that because it's the law, the law was done away with. But we know that Jesus, he said this, he said, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And that's our argument back. That's our debate back to them. He didn't come to abolish the law. I truly tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You can feel it, Adventists, can't you? You can feel it welling up in us. What do we want to do now? We want to debate. We want to fight. We want to argue. The urge to debate, it's in our soul. It's in our DNA. In order to exist as a Sabbath-keeping people, we have to prove that we're right. But can I ask you to follow me for just a minute? Can you go with me to find something that I believe has been missed up until this end time? This new opportunity for us to preach, teach, and live the three angels' message. Can you hang in there with me for just a second? We studied the beast for months. The church that passed for Christians for nearly two millennia, 1260 years of persecution and murder, using that fear to force people to worship, using this kingdom's definition of authority. It included church walks, by the way. No church was, was, um, uh, I forgot the word now. No church was without guilt. It was Catholic, yes. It was Protestant, yes. They all lived by those rules. The last 300 years of that 1260-year prophecy was 300 years into the Reformation. They bought into that power too. All the way to today, where I truly believe that today's manifestation is Christian nationalism. I look at it, I see We could identify her as the church state, as Babylon. Now hang with me for a second. For months we could identify her. And you know what I never mentioned in being able to identify her? I never mentioned Sunday. I didn't have to. Was the church arrogant? Yes. Was part of the arrogant boasts of this beast? The changing? Yes. But do we really believe that the most serious thing that the beast could do would be to change the Sabbath? It's all part and parcel. It's all in the package. See, but remember, we were formed in the 1850s. We were formed after 1798 when that prophecy ends. And just for a little while, that church in Philadelphia showed the church what they could be. A church in Philadelphia didn't look and go seeking power from this planet, didn't look and go seeking power from governments. They decided that they were going to live with little or no power and rely completely on the power given to them by the Holy Spirit. And for about 40 years, we got a glimpse. By the way, that church was only one of two churches that Jesus comes to and has nothing bad to say about. But that door shut pretty quickly, didn't it? Because Laodicea slams it shut. 
Philadelphia ends with Jesus saying that I've opened a door that no one can shut. And Laodicea comes along and they have shut the door. They have locked Jesus on the outside and claimed to have richness and authority and power. I am rich and have need of nothing. And we know who that is, don't we? And wasn't part of the richness our interpretation of what we thought the three angels' message was? So we came along in the 1850s and we see our mission, this three angels mission in an American crucible, which means the other people that we're trying to reach in America at that time, are they, are, are, are they quote unquote pagans? Are they unbelievers? No, they're Christians. Back then, we had a great, vast, many, many more people who claimed to be Christian. They were Presbyterians, they were Baptists, they were Methodists. And what we saw our mission to be was to take our peculiar doctrine, our five, uh, if you will, um, uh, peculiar beliefs. We see ourselves as a peculiar people with a peculiar message. We saw that, that reaching other Christians with those five beliefs, that was our mission. That was what we are to do. And when you go and address other Christians, what is the one way that that mission becomes? What is the one form that it becomes? You can't help it. It's a fight. It's a debate. See, I think because every Christian who's, who's ever been baptized, once they accept Christ, they think they now have permission to debate other Christians. We're believers in Christ, let's take the gloves off. And when they fought back, they told us, well, wait a minute, we're part of the new covenant and the the Sabbath was the old covenant and it's been done away with. Think about this though. The old covenant was that God wanted to walk and talk with his children. That was the old covenant. And even after the children refused, It didn't change God. It's still his covenant to walk and to talk. But what they wanted was to remove this face-to-face relationship and move it to the tablet. You're a lot less scary, God, as long as I can just read about you and not have to walk with you. You're a lot less scary if I worship you on a tablet or in the pages of a Bible. You're a lot less scary if I can make an idol out of your word rather than you as my creator. See, the new covenant is Jesus Christ, God with legs, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and lived among us, walked among us, literally. See, the old covenant is the what? Is the new covenant and the new covenant is the what? Is the old covenant. So neither of those arguments hold. Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant. The word finally walks and talks with his children. Yet when he came and he walked and talked with him, it said that he was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not what? 
They did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. Why? Because they're living in the shadows, and they're perfectly happy living in the shadows. They have been ever since Sinai. For 2,000 years, they've been perfectly happy living in what they claim is a perfect view of the word. They were the best Bible students. They were the most dedicated to mission and care. They didn't accept him. Why? Because he said they prefer the darkness. We always thought he was talking about the world there, that the world prefers the darkness, the world prefers to stay in sin. No, it's anybody who refuses to walk in his light. In prayer meeting and studying the gospel of John, the most shocking thing that we, that we saw was that the church, his church, the church that claimed to follow him, the church that, that believed that they knew exactly who the Messiah was and was gonna bring about the Messiah, they actually told him there was no way he could be the Messiah. And what were they using to put between them and the Messiah? They were using his word. You walking law, Word became flesh. You can't be what God says you are because your word says you can't be. Completely fine with walking in the shadows. Think of all the study that went in for 2,000 years, all the study of the Torah, all the study that, that produces two separate Talmuds that, that when they go to write it down, it's 40 and 50 and 60 volumes, the way to be able to live. And before, and before you, you become a little bit uh, feeling good about all of that, don't tell me, don't tell me that any Christian church doesn't have their own Talmud. We all do, do we not? But did they notice, did they notice that all of that study brought them nowhere near coming back to Sinai? And so that when God decides to come down the mountain himself, they run just like they did at Sinai. All the Bible study in the world does not invite you to have a walking, talking, living, breathing relationship. It may invite us to have faith in, but it doesn't open up the possibility of having the faith of. The shadow is not the law. The shadow is the law on paper, on stone, on screens. I told you, right here, right now, just downloaded. I know we could, Bible Gateway could give me even more, but just right now, downloaded, I've got 37 Bibles on here. But Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that testify on my behalf. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Scriptures, all the law, the prophets, all the writings, ceremonial, civil, all of it, all written down, all stone, all paper, all missing one thing, missing life, missing soul, missing breath. 
So real quick, when it comes to the Sabbath, Jesus proved it to us. He, he had an, a situation, it says at the time, Matthew 12 says, at the time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry. They began to pluck the heads of grain to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. He said to them, do you, have you not read? Again, have you not what? You guys claim to be Bible students, but have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple break the Sabbath, yet are what? Yet are guiltless. Let me ask you this. Did David break the law? Did the priest break the law? Are the priests law breakers? They would answer no, but I have to tell you that they did. They broke the letter of the law. The law says that that bread is for nobody but the priests. It's made every Sabbath. And the loaves that are taken off the table of showbread every Sabbath are given to the priests. They are the only ones that are allowed to eat. The law says one thing about the Sabbath that you're not supposed to do, and that is what? Don't work. What do the priests work for a living? What do they do? They work. Do they take Sabbath off? No. I've told you before. I work harder on Sabbath than any other day. And I thank you for letting me rest. And you know when that rest is? It's on Sunday. But Jesus said something greater than what? Something greater than the temple is here. We get that, don't we? The temple was supposed to be a shadow. What we have to start getting to is that the commandment also was a shadow. The fourth commandment, one through 10, on tablets, they were all a shadow. And then he quotes, he says this, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. He goes back to a pre-exilic prophet, a prophet that's trying to warn Israel about being hauled into captivity. Why? Because they were worshiping idols. They were not taking care of the poor. They were not taking care of the widow. However, they were living their, their relationship with God by the letter, perfectly. They were still bringing their sacrifices. They still believed that they were blessed by God because they were still in the land. And every time a prophet came along and said, you can't be worshiping idols, they would say, well, if God is so displeased with me, why do I still have the land that Joshua gave my great, 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 great grandfather? Why is that temple still standing and allowing me to bring my sacrifices there? I appreciate your word, brother, but you better go back and read your scriptures. If they understood that mercy, compassion, steadfast love, by the way, all manifestations of him that that's what he's looking for. And for those of us, if we had the faith of Jesus, that is what would exist in us. And we could make it then part and parcel of the three angels' message. Eliminate the Sabbath? No. But take it off the page. 
write it on the heart and to begin to live and breathe the love and the mercy that is in the Sabbath and be able to spread that rather than the letter of the law. Perseverance is to seek to live better by the law. You can be perfect in the letter. You can have the right day. You can have the right definitions. You can have the right restrictions and you could still be breaking it. Let me pull back just a little bit on Matthew 12 and show you who's really violating the Sabbath here. It takes place on the Sabbath. Do you think Matthew has the day wrong? No, Matthew does not have the day wrong. And what are they doing out in the fields? What are they doing? They're doing work. They're doing work of a farmer. Are they breaking the law? Yes. They're not breaking a Jewish interpretation of the law. They are breaking the law. They are harvesting, they are threshing, and they are preparing. That's all what? Work. They are breaking the letter of the law. But here, understanding the difference, quoting from Hosea, Jesus understands the difference between the commandment on stone and commandment on the heart. The one thing that the commandment does on stone does not take into consideration is that his disciples are hungry. I told you before, it's just, it breaks my heart the number of times that I made my child wait until sundown just because he was hungry. Jesus says they're not breaking the law. Jesus says, I'm not breaking the law. Notice, those guys are using the disciples' actions to condemn Jesus, which is what they want. Your disciples do which is not lawful, which means they're doing what you taught them. See, they want Jesus and they want him bad. The only way that they can execute him for being a heretic is if he leads other people into worshiping other gods. So they're trying to catch him on this. They're constantly trying to do that. And Jesus said, you know what? If you knew what Hosea meant when he says, I desire mercy, if you knew what it meant to really have the spirit of my father living in you, you would not have condemned the guiltless. It's not, it's not that something merciful has happened, so breaking the Sabbath is allowed. They're truly innocent. Love and mercy aren't ways or excuses to break the letter of the law. Love and mercy is the way of fulfilling the law. You can break the letter by keeping it. So he points out, the priest's decision to give David unlawful bread was actually a merciful thing to do because David was starving and he had an enemy on his back. So David, so this particular situation was the law wasn't broken in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The law was what? It was fulfilled. The priest knew what he was doing. He points out that God's atonement for sin on the Sabbath is a merciful thing to do. Can you imagine if we tried to go 24 hours without his atonement for sin on the altar? I know you need mercy and forgiveness, but you need to wait till sundown. So 
so that the priest's willingness to break the law by working on it actually is fulfilling the law. Are you getting to understand what has been so inadequate about our interpretation of the three angels' message? One thing that hit me this past week, and I apologize to prayer meeting in the morning, but I also say that if you'd have been with me at prayer meeting in the morning, you would already know this. But one thing that hit me last week is that these religious leaders, the church of his day, that have this spiritual myopia concerning the law, their perfect keeping of it, because right now they're standing there perfectly keeping it, they're not doing what the disciples are doing, right? They're standing there, but they are the ones breaking the law. Because notice the one thing that they don't accuse the disciples and the rabbi are not accused of. They're not accused of stealing. Does that, does that field belong to Jesus or any of his disciples? No. They're just walked into it and are uh, um, uh, partaking of it themselves. Why? Because the law said they could. Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 24. You shall not harvest the edges of your field. That is for the sojourner. That is for the wanderer. That is for the alien in your midst. And the only reason that Jesus and his disciples are having to partake, are having to use the letter of the law so that they could eat on the Sabbath is because they are wanderers and aliens on this day and nobody took them in. And if you want to go back to the, cap, to the commandment, the seventh day of your Lord, your God, is you shall not do any work, your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle, or your what? Your sojourner who stays with you. If they really had the spirit of the Sabbath living within them, they wouldn't be able to complain about the disciples taking the wanderer's portion of somebody's field. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. For three and a half years, nobody took him in. Nobody took this little rad tag uh, um, rabbinic school in. Well, he did have one sponsor, a woman, a prostitute. Here is the perseverance of the saints. Those who what? Those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So let's remember as we boast that we know what it means to keep the commandments of God. The difference between the faith of and the faith in. Perseverance isn't coming up with a better argument. Perseverance isn't, isn't uh, coming up with a better study. Perseverance isn't coming up with a better way to debate. It's persevering in love. If you can persevere in love and mercy on this planet, you've accomplished something. And if we could just, just have a mustard seed of faith that allows us just to persevere just a little bit, then we are as ready as we need to be for him to come. I try not to cluck my tongue at the folks in that blizzard for not taking in the stranger. The man described himself, our, our hero described himself as a believer, 
believed that it all happened for a reason. He reflected on it later. He said, you know, if one of those people had taken me in, I never would have been able to find those 10 people at the school. But if any of those others were a believer, don't you, do you think that they would be able to accept that about themselves? Do you think that they would be able to find forgiveness and to find peace? They could if the church would surround them and say, you know what, man? I have a fallen nature just like you. I probably would have done the same thing. But you know what? I have, I have the faith of Jesus and he wants you he maybe not wants you to forget this. He wants you to learn from it. He wants, you, he wants you to know that you can have forgiveness, that you could be at one with him, that his love knows no bounds and no betrayal. So one question for you. You think this is gonna be easy? See, we used to, boy, when you, when you recruited me, church, you made it sound like it was very easy. All I had to do was know what the right day was. You told me this was gonna be easy. And it isn't, isn't it? It's easy to, to decide to persevere in law. It's easy to, to uh, I have to say, it's easier to worship the beast than it is to worship the lamb that was slain. Before I met the lamb, before I met Jesus, my life was not complicated at all. Because this world and the church uh, that represents this world, the church of the beast, they let me indulge my nature whenever I wanted. They let me, uh, who would not want to worship a God that says, it's okay to worship me when you want to. It's okay to worship me until, it's okay to love your neighbor as yourself until you find that one neighbor that you can't love. Then go ahead and do what you want. That's why the whole world wonders after the beast. It's the end time adult, uh, uh, idolatry. And as long as I do it by the letter of the law, I can walk away patting myself on the back. So it isn't easy. In fact, the angel says this, that the perseverance of the saints keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. He actually says this, I'm sorry, I didn't have the last verse there. He says, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes is the spirit, says the spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them. If this was gonna be easy, do you think he had to say, hey, you know who's really got it easy? Everybody who's dead. If you guys die in the Lord right now, back in the first century, then you're probably better off than any of the remnant that's coming. Because they get to rest. You and I get to rest only in the faith of him, having his faith, his faith, persevering in him. See, it leaves us asking, and it leaves us wondering, but it leaves us together. So hopefully we can do this together. And eventually what we will learn is that it leaves us with him, only him. And he'll teach us what it really means to have only him in our lives and in our hearts.
I'll leave you with Abraham Heschel speaking to us in his book, God in Search of Man. I'll leave our three angels message here. It's customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. It would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, and insipid. When faith is completely replaced by creed, worship by discipline, love by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. The three angels' message is not a meaningless message unless we leave it on the page and leave it on the tablet. I pray we don't persevere as Bible students. I want us to be good Bible students. Believe me, I do. But I pray we persevere as sons and daughters of the living God. The third angel's message. Thank you all for holding on with me. Happy New Year. Thank you.